Jokeland Hawe iti ambo sunganyama kapena kusamalira chilengedwe tikaliopeza hapo chachita BCP I'm Gordon Peake, the host of Memorandum of Understanding from the Development Policy Center, a new podcast series that peers behind the bureaucratic curtain to tell the story of the people, policies, and politics of international aid. The subject of this podcast is about efforts to keep alive a resource traditionally deemed more valuable when it is dead, chopped down and transported away in trucks or boats, or cleared away for the farming of products such as cattle, soybeans, palm oil and paper. That resource is the forest and throughout the world it is disappearing at alarming rates. In the southern African nation of Zambia, an area of forest twice the size of London disappears each year. At this rate, in less than a generation's time, all of Zambia's forests will be gone, and with it all the natural ecosystems underneath, the wildlife that lives close by or under its canopies. Tearing down forests impacts directly upon climate change, releasing carbon into the atmosphere with each fail. But for local communities in Zambia, forest depletion has not been out of malice or ill intent. The main drivers of deforestation include charcoal burning, firewood collection, uncontrolled bushfires, small-scale illegal mining, agricultural field expansion, and illegal logging, with international timber demand being one of the largest contributors to that illicit trade. And notwithstanding the steps needed to be taken to green global industry and supply chains, Protecting forests represents approximately one-third of the action needed to keep global average temperature rise at or below two degrees. And what to do about this deforestation? Traditionally, the approach on the part of development donors and NGOs has been to appeal to the moral high ground, to try to persuade the people who live in forest areas to safeguard the resource around them. That approach works sometimes, but in many cases, such efforts are confronted with a very rational question. What's in it for me? You're asking me to protect the forest, but what do I get out of it? How can I pay for school fees, for mobile phone credit, for cooking oil, for the necessities of my life? The project that we profile this week gets to the heart of this question of what's in it for me. Biocarbon Partners is an African social enterprise based in Zambia that shows that more value and worth can accrue to communities by keeping trees in the ground than by chopping them down. Their mission statement reads thus, to combat climate change, we need to protect our forest. To protect our forests, we need to invest in people. The project works with chiefs, heads of villages and communities, acquiring carbon credits for keeping the forest pristine and selling those credits on international markets to emitters and plowing the earnings back into communities in terms of schools, solar lights, better access to water, and most profoundly, cash transfers. In every sense of the word, they have built a self-sustaining livelihood ecosystem. 
This is a memorandum of understanding the connections between conservation, carbon, communities, and global commitments. There is money to be made from being clean and green. We begin this journey juddering down dusty pothole dirt roads within the areas in which Biocarbon Partners works in Zambia. And at the wheel is communications coordinator, Chloe Evans. As our phones lose signal and we descend deeper down into the Luangwa Valley, I am always amazed at how remotely our community partners live. Today we are heading to Luembe Chiefdom in Eastern Province to meet Chief Luembe, one of our community partners in the Luangwa Community Forest Project, and to meet with lead farmers and community beneficiaries. Luembe is one of the 12 chiefdoms that we partner with through the LCFP, of which 2,364 households are benefiting directly in Luembe from forest carbon fees. We are in the heart of rainy season here in Eastern Province, and another thunderstorm last night has made the road even more tricky to navigate than usual. The road is made up of heavy jagged rocks, giant potholes within potholes, and loose sand when dry, but thick and sinking mud when wet. The traverse landscape means we spend the majority of the drive avoiding rock faces and swerving round deep water-filled crevices. We have already had to rely on our trusty winch twice on the journey so far. As they see us coming, women and children disperse from the roadside, where they are selling vegetables, meeting their neighbours, and using the puddles of fresh rainwater collected in the potholes to wash their clothes. This is an opportunity for people to access fresh and clean water at a close and safe distance after a night of heavy rain. And as Chloe circumnavigates the driving hazards, let's zoom out a little bit and go to where BCP began with its CEO, Dr. Hassan Sashidina. Gordon, my story starts in Kenya, where I was born. So my dad's Kenyan and my mother's American. And as a child, my mother took me on camping safaris to these areas, which in those days were still quite remote. Some of my earliest memories are in Kenyan national parks. You know, views of Kilimanjaro, elephants around the camp, lions around the camp, cooking on elephant dung, you know, stuff like that. And I really enjoyed it. As a teenager, I began to volunteer on rhino sanctuaries from around the age of 16, my summer and, and Christmas holidays. And this was during a period of effectively a rhino war, where the remaining wild rhinos were being corralled up and put in fortified sanctuaries and placed under 24-hour armed protection. And so those were, for a teenager, kind of heady days. You know, we were cruising around in land cruisers and aircraft, and we were trying to catch rhinos, literally, literally catching them. How do you go about capturing a rhino? <laughs> it's a combination of air and ground. You need a, a spotter plane. You need trackers on yeah. the ground. You need a helicopter with a vet. You need to dart it. Then you need a truck to go in and winch it up into a crate, truck it around with security, armed security. It's quite a logistical feat. So those were really my um, apprenticeship days. You know, how do you do fence lines and anti-poaching patrols? My first full-time job out of university was running a rhino project in a game reserve in southern Tanzania, supporting the government to locate the last wild rhinos and set up a monitoring and protection program in an area that was unfenced and, and large called the Salu Game Reserve. So that was really my entry into the world of aid finance conservation and really dealing with people who live on the boundary. 
and there was big conflict issues and we were really struggling to bring in the finance and the funding and really struggling to protect these rhinos. So around the time that Hassan was lassoing rhinos in the savannah, the countries of the world were meeting in Kyoto in order to limit emission levels to a point that it would not interfere with the world's climate. To give tangible form to these commitments, governments developed and supported a wide range of initiatives, incentives, and needless to say, acronyms. And an acronym that you'll hear Hassan speak about in the podcast is RED+. RED stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation, and the PLUS signifies the role of conservation and sustainable management of forests. RED Plus ties in with another approach, setting a price on carbon and creating markets that enable companies that emit greenhouse gases to buy credits or offsets from projects that can be verifiably shown to save emissions ascending into the atmosphere. It all made sense on paper, but when Hassan started out, his challenge was trying to find anyone that would fund him to make a project that protects forests a reality. The first half of my career was spent in the non-profit sector, where primarily trying to raise charitable donations and a bit of money from tourism to fund conservation, which is really difficult at times. And no time other than COVID has made that clearer, where aid and philanthropy has plummeted and tourism has effectively crashed, collapsed. So when we started BCP, we wanted to develop a market-based model that fairly rewards African communities and citizens for the globally valuable services they provide in terms of emissions reductions. We managed to raise some impact investment, but we couldn't get any commercial bank to back us. We were a startup. So myself and a, a small team of some great colleagues, what we did is we rapidly scoped between Ethiopia to South Africa for a project that we could start up and we could get to verification before we ran out of money. It became really apparent that if we're going to try and do this, we've got to try and do this in a country which is not as far gone as where I'm from, which is Kenya. Kenya at that time was down to less than 3% forest cover. So we quickly narrowed in on Zambia because it is one of Africa's most forested countries. It's got about 60% forest cover but it has the highest amount of deforestation by land cover, hectares lost, of any African country. And it's a global top 10 per capita emitter from deforestation. It's got highways, it's English-speaking, it's stable, and very welcoming to foreign investors. We had our letter of approval from the forestry department, our regulator, and the Zambia Development Agency, our investment protection certificate, within like 12 days. It was one of the most efficient processes I've ever encountered. The thing about the Zambian government environment is that it's one of the most advanced, in my opinion, in the world when it comes to legislation around community forest management and forest carbon. It's one of the few countries in the world that I'm aware of where communities can apply to government for carbon rights and the rights to own and manage those forests. So... Zambia is very, very aware at a governmental level of the risks of deforestation. I mean, the scientists are saying that we have less than 
20 years. I think the latest is 15 years at current deforestation rates before the estate is depleted. So there's a level of local urgency which kind of ties into Zambia's commitments at the Paris Climate Agreement level. Zambia's contribution to emissions is not through industry primarily. It's in many ways a land use contribution from agriculture and uh, forest management. But you're dealing with sort of various abstractions, like there's an abstract concept called carbon credits, then you, you sell it onto a kind of market that sort of exists virtually somewhere else. And so it's a challenge of communication in lots of ways to explain what carbon is, why it's an issue, how you can, it can be commodified, and what you do with the carbon credits once you've kind of sold them. You're right. It is really difficult to explain something as esoteric as a, as a credit. But it was really refreshing. And, you know, any doubts or concerns I, I may have had in the very beginning, those dissipated in the first meetings I had with communities. Because when it came to explaining the impacts of climate change and deforestation, communities were way, way, way ahead of the curve uh, in terms of what's happening to rainfall patterns, what's happening to soil, things like that. So in many ways, they were able to explain better than we were and some of the consultants that we were working with. It was challenging at times, I think, because of mistrust. Were we there to grab land or try and get into diamond mining? There is a history in Zambia of extractive industries like logging and mining. So some of the approaches in the past maybe have contributed to that reduction in trust. We got delayed in one chiefdom by around six months because a rumor was going around that we were going to stick syringes in the tree, extract the carbon, which was going to suck all the oxygen out of the chiefdom, cause everyone to die from oxygen starvation and leave the chiefdom a desert. And these are, you know, very real fears for people who are dealing with subsistence and day-to-day -day and seasonal-to-season -season survival. So we had to take those issues really, really seriously and try and work on ways to communicate and reassure people that this is non-extractive. And if we're able to do this together, what it should be able to do is not only restore livelihoods in really impoverished parts of the country, but also restore some of these forests and the services they provide. Some areas have got depleted wildlife populations. So we said it's going to be a shared journey and it is going to have risk. We may not verify, we may not sell anything, we may have the forest get cut down. But if we go along this journey, it, it's going to be a long-term partnership. So it's not an immediate payoff that comes from, from these sorts of partnerships. You know, the communities have got to wait six months or 12 months or 24 months to the verification happens, then it goes to the marketplace, then you get your carbon credit certificate and then the, the benefits flow back. So there's a large amount of trust that communities have got to vest in you. You know, that old kind of expression about the acronym of WIIFM, you know, what's in it for me? Why should I trust you as opposed to someone else that came six months ago, also promising me seemingly, you know, fantastically good things? It's really interesting when you talk about timelines, because we implement at the moment two Vera verified red projects in Zambia. The first, our showcase project, the Lower Zambezi Red Plus project, is relatively small. It's about 40,000 hectares. And it took us two years to get to verification, which means 
issuance and monetization. But our second project, which is our flagship, it's a lot bigger. It's about 950,000 hectares, the Luangwa Community Forest Project. Gordon, that took us six and a half years to build. It cost us about 19 million US dollars to get from zero to monetization. And if you think about any kind of traditional business model, imagine opening a restaurant, but not being able to serve a single dish for six and a half years, or opening a shop and not being able to sell a bottle of water for six and a half years. Most businesses would go under. And most customers wouldn't stay. They'd say, well, I've got to go somewhere else. (laughs) We're not going to wait. (laughs) That's right. So there are major, major hurdles, which is why there's so few of these projects around the world and so few around Africa and so few companies like ours who've made it through the startup stage. So our formula has been to invest really quite heavily in community livelihoods from the early stages of the project development. It wouldn't have been enough if we'd said, look, we want you to wait. So we did a combination of things. We invested in social services. We invested in livelihood programs like Climate Smart Agriculture. We invested in 11,000 beehives. We invested even in um, some limited conservation fees, which we paid to the community to enable them to build some of the experience and capacity of managing direct payments. We've always been demand-driven. We knew that it was going to be a real weakness to the model if we went into communities and said, we think you should do A or B. It's a dialogue that our interests are to protect that forest over there. We would like you to assist and join us in this journey because there are certain benefits that you will get out of this. And some of those are in the form of these livelihood investments, which we're prepared to make. But you need to let us know what you think is going to make the most impact in your community. And then we do it jointly together. Whatever we gain out of this partnership goes straight to the communities. And the communities have got the right to choose what they want done with whatever we realize from this partnership. So this, in my view, is is a down-up arrangement whereby the people tell you what they want and then we provide the materials and everything that is needed. And it is just that way. And that was Chief Luembe of the Luembe Chieftain, a BCP partner and one of the people that Chloe has been journeying down the road to meet. People have come to understand and appreciate the conservation that uh, we are currently involved in. They have come to like it in that uh, we have seen a lot of positive changes, so to say, in terms of uh, wildlife numbers, the way the, the forests are being cared for, the way we are protecting the trees, because previously there was uh, indiscriminate cutting of trees, but now we have controlled it. Although it's not completely uh, eradicated, but at least we are seeing reduced numbers of people cutting trees unnecessarily. So this is how we are noticing that uh, the communities are appreciating. And in a bit of a side trip, Chloe went further off-road to neighbouring Sandwe chiefdom, where the sentiments from Chief Sandwe were much the same. Communities were coming to appreciate the forest 
and benefit from its health. Before we partnered with the BCP, I think our lives were miserable in terms of development. Now, the time we joined, we thought uh, we wouldn't go anywhere with them, but we thought of trying them. But um, what has come out is uh, actually very impressive. We have a number of projects that uh, we laid before us, and they all have been uh, done very successfully. Even this uh, school. The school was uh, very dilapidated. But uh, with the sponsorship of BCP, I think you can see it is uh, one of the envied schools now. Uh, it looks beautiful and uh, because of that, even the, the school enrollment, people have been attracted just by the look of the school. It is looking nice now. It's because of the same uh, BCP sponsorship. Uh, I can assure you that this year we are going to have a bumper harvest. The board managed to buy seed for every household, which has really helped individuals. And they are very thankful for that, because it is for the first time that an individual has received free seed, so to speak. And they have managed it well. It is doing fine despite the floods, which have been experienced. But I think most of the members in the chiefdom will not experience hunger. We have uh, a number of boreholes that have been drilled. People didn't have clean water. But as we are talking now, most of the villages are accessing good water because of the boreholes sunk through the sponsorship of BCP. I'm one of the marketeers here. Now we really thanks for the BCP who has brought this boho for us. Long time ago, we really suffered a lot. We used to collect water from the rivers, but this time now it's easy. We collect water from the boho. As you can see, this is the clean water coming from this boho. We used to share water with cows, goats, pigs, but now our things are easy. We drink clean water. <laughs> We've broadly termed it a quality of life approach. And what the community has guided is primarily been things like clean water, health and education, and then bolted onto that improvements in agriculture. So here we, we're dealing with extensive rain-fed subsistence agriculture that's incredibly sensitive to you know rainfall fluctuation and pests and things like that. So by making improvements in agriculture, you can increase food security and more importantly nutrition security on a smaller footprint of land and in some ways with less labor when done right. My name is Mavis Mwanza. I'm the lead farmer for BCP. So how is this farming different to your other methods of farming? 
ubwino ameleta pesa monokuti tikachita gampani it's different from other methods of farming because it has no labor then if you use that conservation farming if there's drought then we do keep wet in our field and also you don't have to clear so much land no you can use the same land which we have done conservation farming for the all seasons for the all years because the odd farming we are cultivating the whole land but this one we just concentrate where we did conservation farming and for harvesting we do harvest more than the way we are doing last seasons And then you combine that with what we call off-farm income, for example, honey cash. And what we've noticed through various independent surveys, which we can track from time to time, is that average household income has been increasing dramatically. So over a five-year period, it went up about 400%. Roughly, when we arrived, 90% of the households are living under the World Bank poverty definition. And then all of a sudden you've got this project which isn't extracting anything, but it's addressing your health, your education issues, your clean water, and your food security, and it's providing a lot of employment. And all these various avenues of putting cash and energy and resources into a community, you address the fundamental basic building blocks. Mm -hmm. Of course there's going to be a dramatic change. In the last 12 months, we've distributed, just in direct payments, $4.3 million dollars. To 12 communities. In the last week, we wired out $2 million. So even pre-COVID, I'm not aware of many initiatives like this in the region that are channeling this amount in direct payments to community institutions. And with COVID, there's no other game in town like it. But it's interesting the point that you make about the direct payments model. Is it better that I do a project and give you something? Or is it better that I give you the money in order for you to decide what you want to do with it yourself? I'm very, very much of the latter school. I mean, the argument for not giving direct credits is some people waste money, some people, you know, spend it poorly, etc. And my attitude to that is, well, I waste some of my money. I, like, I spend some of my money poorly. Absolutely. You know, so, Gordon, the reason I set up BCP was I previously was working for a competitor, uh, an American firm, and... I just remember this one interaction that really got me, you know, we, we were under pressure to drive down budgets and being communicated that, you know, it's only Africa, just make it adequate. And having a visceral reaction to that, because this is where I, I was born and grew up. So the reason the company was set up was to try to retain more of the benefits of this sector in Africa and to do it from here. We are 99% African born in terms of our staffing. We are African-based, headquartered, focused, you name it. And that is the point. One of the reasons why the direct payments are important is it's really important to look at this up from the long game. Yes, there is a risk of waste, fraud and leakage, for sure. It's not a possibility, it's a probability that some of this is going to happen. But we have to look at things not from a silver bullet perspective, is that we need to build capacity incrementally we need stronger community institutions. We need a stronger ecosystem that is able to drive 
community's own development. And if we were to sort of come in and say, we need to control and do everything for you, it probably would not result in the same feeling of ownership over the project and the forest. And if we look at it right now, I mean, communities have entrusted us with around two and a half million acres of their forest through co-management agreements. It's an astronomical amount of land. They haven't sold it to us. We don't own a single acre in Zambia. Literally, the company does not own one acre. We rent. <laughs> and this area of forest is not ours. It's uh, the communities. They need to have that sense of ownership. And that means being able to make their own mistakes, if that's going to happen, and chart their own development course. And so the way we view this is our role is to do our best to support these processes. And we're trying to become a member of the community in the chiefdoms we work, where whether these markets go up or down, and they have been very down for many years, we're shoulder to shoulder and we'll do our best together. But ultimately, you know what's best for your development, not, not me or our company. So, taona BCP, yadita bunatetrambeo, niponso BCP, yutuwala pasogolo chitukujam Zambia, osati seseka kuno. BCP has brought us seed and it's developing Zambia going forward. So, chitusenga, njaoti BCP, munga kuno kwasi kwa sandwe, yufuni katuyo kwira pamo nchito na mfumu, chifukwa na mfumu iti na yoni openya. BCP, has to work together with the chief so that we develop our, our chief together. Then SEO, to send our BCP SEO, SEO, Panelo Yaste Manduna, to send our BCP, to Paseco to Manjinga, Uti to Enderapo, Nikusenga Kwasulomba Kwaseseka. Our Inkani, Yufunika Fuko Fessi, Kuti Savankani Wamba. Thank you very much, madam. Our request is that BCP should consider us buying bicycles because we have difficulties in mobility. I see. So, to send us at the Mova request, that's a request. I feel really comfortable that we're living our mission. And it, it's simply, we want to make the conservation of wildlife habitat valuable to people. We are helping to improve the protection through a great set of partnerships across around a million hectares of one of the last greatest wildlife landscapes left on the planet. The Lower Zambezi to Luangwa ecosystem is ranked by Nat Geo as one of the last 10 strongholds for lion. The areas we're helping to uh, protect interlink five national parks, three countries, two transfrontier conservation areas. It's benefiting wildlife on a large scale and we're already in multiple sites beginning to see wildlife recoveries, increases of key species. For example, roan antelope. In some cases, we're seeing an increase of predators, such as lion, wild dog are becoming more prevalent in some areas. And some of the corridors which the project has established are functional. Wildlife are moving through and using these areas. And the two projects are benefiting 225,000 people. And these are in some of the most impoverished areas on the planet. 
And so if I were to take a step back from this today, I would feel like, look, you know, we've got an incredible team of people in Zambia who are doing amazing work. And my role is really just to support them. We are protecting the biodiversity, the forest and the other uh, living beings in those forests. And then we are conserving for the future. Things that would have uh, gone extinct because of uh, misuse are now seen to be increasing in number. We are very positive that uh, because of that, the future generation will see what we shall leave for them. Yeah, unlike what was there before, whereby you find numbers of wildlife diminishing. One of them is the rhino, which completely went off the face of the Rongo Valley. But these others that are there, we are trying to protect. Not only wildlife, even the trees, the forest itself. There are certain trees that have a special value to the communities and each time they see that tree they would want to cut it so we have educated them that they should not completely finish off all these things so this is the reason why we are saying it is important should it continue obviously a lot more is going to be protected and as chief Luembe. Headman Stanley Lumbaka, who you heard earlier negotiating bicycles with Chloe in Nianja, and communities have found value in these forests, so too have global markets which have flipped their traditional role. Rather than profiting from extraction and dirty industry, the full covering of carbon polluters from around the world are paying for the footprint that they have been making. We want to work with companies who are committed to reducing their overall footprint and offsetting their unavoidable emissions from companies like ours. But over time, they really should be getting that to zero so they don't have to spend money on offsets that our company produces, for example. So the way we view this is a, is a pipeline of offsetting partners. We don't view them as customers or clients. They're offsetting partners that over time they should reduce and exit and we're actually seeing that happening in our pipeline. And I think the number of companies that we're seeing which are showing interest in this space over the last 12 months, there's definitely been an uptick. I think COVID has changed a lot of things and it's really reframed how we perceive our relationship with the natural world. COVID is probably a virus that came from habitat loss and it's ground world economies to a halt. And it's made us rethink how we do work, how we commute, how we travel, how we consume. And it's shown that dramatic change is possible. And given the scale and scope of the project, that question that fills me with dread when it is asked of me had to be asked of Hassan. What are your plans for the future? Where to from here? We're at about a million hectares right now, two and a half million acres. By 2030, our goal is to have signed co-management agreements over 12 million hectares or 30 million acres, and to be directly impacting 3 million people. We're looking at a multi-country approach. We're in Zambia right now, and we have a business plan which is regional. So we'd like to replicate our model and partner with government and communities in sub-Saharan Africa. 
On the red side of things, in order to generate a credit through Vera, you need a minimum 30-year agreement to show that that forest is going to stay forest, that there's a commitment from the landowner. It's a huge hurdle. Many landowners really, really struggle with this because it's just so far out. So the way the company is set up is these are 30-year projects minimum. Not a single red project in the world has run for 30 years. So we're not, no one's sure yet what happens at that mark. Does it extend or does it end? So what we're trying to do is just to try to structure over the next 20 years enough of a sustainable local economy, which is for now backboned on conservation income, that should the world achieve net zero by 2040, which is unlikely, but it's possible, should these carbon markets plateau or dissipate by that time, that these areas have developed enough from a sustainable standpoint that ideally they'd be able to stand better on their own two feet. More than 10 years ago now, a Zambian economist, Dambisa Moyo, wrote a best-selling book entitled Dead Aid. Moyo has a take-no-prisoner style, and she argued that development aid was making the continent worse off, not better. And the book won her acolytes and adversaries in equal measure. I find the text a little bit too screed-like betimes, but I valued the book because it expanded the boundaries of the conversation about development. It called on those working in aid to look hard at themselves and to consider different approaches. And although this is not the only such type of project, the Biocarbon Partners approach has expanded the conversation in terms of conservation, carbon reduction and community development to look for new ways of dealing with what can feel like insurmountable problems. This is Memorandum of Understanding. I'm Gordon Peake. The producer is Julia Bergen. Music is from Luther Knut. And we'd like to thank Chloe Evans from Biocarbon Partners for the field interviews. We go to air every fortnight, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to get your feedback and appreciate it so much if you could leave us a review or a rating. Follow us on Twitter at MOU underscore pod. See you in a couple of weeks. (laughs) 